HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by the Heritage Meat Shop. For more information, visit www.heritagemeatshop.com. All right, it is once again Thursday, one o'clock, and you are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report, and I am your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We're coming to you live from the back of Roberta's in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn, where yesterday there was a lot of hot dog eating going down for the Fourth of July holiday. Today things have mellowed out, and we are back talking to you about fiber, not just for breakfast anymore. Uh, I have Mary Jean Packer, my co-producer on this series, on the line with us. Mary Jean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be on. Yeah, great to have you back. It's been such a, such a fun series, kind of getting a chance to work through um, all these great guests that you help line up and really talk about fiber production and processing. And, and today we're going to learn a little bit about uh, what your work up at the Battenkill Fibers Carding and Spinning Mill. Um, but before we tuck into that, I wanted to maybe get a sense briefly from you as how, how you got into the business of, of fiber and, and what that process has been like for you. Well, I've been an avid knitter, a lifelong knitter, and about 15 years ago, I started doing some consulting work to the value-added ag industry. And things just started coming together when I met sheep farmers and alpaca farmers who had fleeces but no market for them. And I had um, yarn stores at that point, And people were asking me for locally sourced yarn. And I said, oh, there's no such thing, really. Um, I can get some maybe from Vermont or some other state, but I can't really get a commercial quantity of good quality knitting yarn made here in New York. So you kind of uh, looking around in the the knitting store kind of was driven to kind of find a more of a regional supply to essentially fill the demands of your customers. Is that right? Absolutely right, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I was helping 
to drive visitors to fiber farms where farmers were doing a wonderful job of raising animals but not really connecting very well on farm with customers or connecting with customers who said, that's great, that greasy, raw fleece, but what can we do with it? Don't you have any yarn that we could buy instead? Right. So, I mean, and that's the thing you touched on, that this concept of value added, which I think we've heard a lot of in, in the egg and food world recently with regards to kind of edible stuff where you're processing something into sauerkraut or jams or, or jellies or pickles or preserves or even cut and like flash frozen vegetables. But in the, in the, in the wool market, a value added would include like what types of products? Anything starting with uh, just washed locks for hand spinners or carded fiber, uh, including quilt batting or stuffing for pillows or even pet beds. And then from there, um, different kinds of, of pencil roving or sliver that hand spinners enjoy um, just sitting down and working with or up through yarn, yarn in skeins, yarn on cones, plain white, dyed colors, and it just keeps going from there. Wow. You Okay, so you've laid a lot up there, so let's start kind of breaking it, breaking it down. So last week when we left off with um, Andy Rice, who is a professional sheep shearer, you know, we were in the kind of process of the of the wool that had been harvested off the sheep. You know, we, we talked a lot about getting a nice cut off it, how to keep it clean. Um, why don't you, why don't we start from there? So you have essentially uh, the, the fleece that you've harvested. What's the next step uh, in the process? The very next thing we do when, a, when we get a sheep, sheep fleece, just freshly shorn right off the sheep, is uh, go back through it and do what is called skirting. And essentially what we're doing is removing the dirtiest parts around, around the edges, um, regardless of how careful the farmer is in caring for their animal and how careful Andy is in shearing or any shearer. Um, there ends up being um, just parts of the fleece, the undersides, um, around the head and neck that are either real dirty or short or have a lot of vegetation in them. So our very first step is is that process, which is called skirting. Skirting. So, I mean, am I picturing this correctly, that you're essentially taking some type of, she- you know, shears or cutting instrument and cutting down this essentially chunk of uh, of the fleece, trimming it? Trimming is a good way to look at it, but um, the fleece is um, not really connected to each other. It's not like it's the skin, which is still on the sheep or alpaca. It just is in the shape of a sheep, and um, so we can just pull off those bad parts, and um, we have a market for those bad parts. In fact, um, lower-value wool products use that and the the thing most people will recognize is the gray insulation around their windows or in the soles of their hiking boots or under the hood of their car all of that gray felted wool insulation comes from what the people at the mill pull off by the handful 
Okay, I get it. Is something going on at the mill right now? You've you got a little bit of static in the background. Um, yes, we just turned on a machine. I was in my office and had the door open. Now I'm closing the door. <laughs> okay, so um, once you've gone through and, and taken a look at the fleece and, and done the skirting, what's the next step? The very next step is called opening, uh, which just involves taking the fibers that look exactly like they came off the sheep, all tight and curly, and separating them so that they aren't stuck together so much and will be easier to scour. Okay. So the next step is opening. And the opening process, I, I mean... For the skirting and then the opening process, is this something that is always done by hand or in a larger um, operation there would be like a mechanized way to do this? Correct. In a really large operation that handled thousands of pounds a day, a machine called an opener, which looks sort of like a giant cement mixer, would, would tumble the fibers and open them up. Um, here, it's just as easy once we've completed the skirting on one table to keep pulling the fleece apart on the next table um, just by hand and taking that opened fiber and stacking it into large baskets to go into our scouring line. Okay. And then what is the scouring process? The scouring process is um, just a word that's used to describe um, washing, rinsing, or rewashing with very hot water. The goal there is to loosen the lanolin and then with the scouring agent, which is just a detergent, to emulsify the lanolin and lift it right off of the, right off of the fiber. So you're actually removing lanolin? Oh, yes. Um, too much lanolin uh, will hold in the dirt, and you'll just have a sticky, gooey mess as you go through the process. Um, the scouring process can remove up to 100% of the lanolin, um, but at that point you also risk reducing the moisture in the fiber. So we always want to leave just a little, but not so much as the tips are gunky or we have a sticky, messy yarn in the end. Sure. And is the lanolin something that w like a s essentially like separates out and then you would have like this bucket of lanolin to do something else with or is it, is it a byproduct kind of without further use? The process that we use at a commercial mill emulsifies the lanolin. And to reclaim it, we would have to add another chemical back in and try to reconstitute it. Because we're in the business of making yarn, not in the business of making lanolin, we just let our wastewater go out into our septic system where we, we settle out the solids and pump that and haul that to an industrial waste plant and let the liquids um, go into the gray water. Okay. Um, what would you, I mean, what would be some... probably, um, in, I'm sure that's how lanolin is made when people are looking for the lanolin and not for the yarn. And what, just, I'm curious because I don't really know, what, what do you, what would one use lanolin for? It's the basis of cosmetics, uh, hand lotion, um, also when you put uh, grease on your boots to help keep them waterproof, 
um, lanolin is in that. It's in the stuff you rub on your saddle or briefcase or whatever. Sure. So, I mean, I think, I guess that makes sense, like, in, in any business, like, as you go up in volume, kind of the the efficiencies of scale kind of, like, force you to harvest, I think, more products or more of a particular product. Now, the scouring process, is that... Um, is that a controversial or, I mean, what are the options within that as far as like your detergent use? I mean, are you doing anything that will change? It sounds like, you know, you'll change a little bit the texture of, of the wool and make it uh, somewhat cleaner. Does it change the color or is that an option that would happen in there? The scouring process that we use, um, the only way it changes the color is only to remove the dirt that's stuck to the wool and make it brighter. So if it comes in looking gray or tan, it often, after scouring, looks white or ecru. Now, some sheep, as you know, or other fiber animals aren't white, and then that fiber will just be a brighter version of the gray or brown, black, whatever, whatever it is. Now, there is a process that's called superwash, and a lot of people, uh, knitters, uh, look for superwash wool because what that means is they can wash the product after they've knit it and throw it in the washing machine and not have to worry about it felting or shrinking. So that's especially desirable for uh, baby clothes, blankets, um, things that you want to be able to wash quite a bit but still want to use wool and have the properties of wool. Now, the superwash process, until just a year ago, all took place overseas. And now there is a company based in South Carolina that has brought in a superwash line, and I've been fortunate enough to have an opportunity to tour that and and see how it's done. But the superwash process uh, does involve a number of chemicals that work to remove the little natural scales or barbs on each one of the threads that makes up a piece of sheep fleece. And it's those little scales and barbs that cling to each other and produce felt or help your, your yarn or item shrink. So by removing those in a chemical process, um, they've done what's known as superwashing. Okay, so that's why, like, if I if I make a mistake and toss in, like, a wool sweater into my wash and dryer, it comes out tiny because all those little barbs are, are essentially clinging to each other or felting to one another? Is that how you would say it? That's exactly right, Erin. And now, of course, if that happens to your sweater, don't despair. It's all the rage right now to purposefully felt things like that and make it into fabric that won't unravel when you cut it and then cut that apart and make coin purses and eyeglass cases. I've seen folks make um, a sleeve, a little sweater for their iPad or their MacBook and carry it around in their purse or backpack in a little felted sweater. So if that happens, you're, you can still salvage it for, for something. In fact, people go down to the Salvation Army and buy old wool sweaters and felt them on purpose to make things with them. Wow. Well, well I think that we're getting a little ahead. We, I think we skipped a step there. So we're going to, I think we'll take uh, just a short break. And then when we come back, we will, we will pick up post-scouring uh, process. Sounds good. Awesome. 
don't know just where it comes from and I don't know You're listening to Puppet Show by Flagland. I don't know just what it's really got to do with me But I know it does, I know it does I look at it a different way, but it seems the same From this range, I gotta get Just a little further out of it To see what it is, what it is It's a message from the Heritage Meat Shop Are you tired of just hearing buzzwords? Do you want to actually take part in the food revolution? Then come on down to the Heritage Meat Shop, located in New York's historic Essex Street Market, on the corner of Essex and Delancey. We have rare breed pork, beef, poultry, lamb, and goat, not to mention charcuterie that'll make you squeal. All raised right, by the right people, so you know they'll taste right. Try the meat that over 100 New York chefs ache for. Come to the Heritage Meat Shop and pick up some revolution today. For more information, visit heritagemeatshop.com. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Mary Jean Packer talking fiber. So, Mary Jean, before the break, we we were talking about the scouring process. And and so when you when you go through the scouring process, it involves water and involves detergent. And then does the wool at this point go into some type of drying mechanism before it heads into the next step or or how do we transition from there at batten kill fibers we just air dry because we're always trying to keep a high humidity in the mill and a nice moisture content in the wool uh, but at a larger scale mill they would put it through um, a drying machine uh, the drying is important because we don't want the, the fiber to become staticky. Um, just think about your hair. Roughly after a shower, you want to dry it and put in some conditioner so it doesn't fly away. And that's the same with, with the wool. We get it pretty dry. Add just a little bit of spinning oil to help it reduce the static and move through the process. And then we blend that, um, they call it picking, to open the fibers up even more and to add, if we're making a wool alpaca blend or a wool nylon blend, that's the period in which we do the blending too. Okay. So, yeah, I guess I should have asked this earlier, but this the process that we've talked about so far, is it roughly the same for uh, sheep as it is for alpacas or other fiber animals? Yes. It all starts with sorting through what the animal has given you, uh, getting it good and clean but not overly dry, and then making sure it's well well conditioned and well opened and ready for the next step. So here you can either do kind of a, a essentially, it sounds like a, sing, like a single origin fiber, or you can t- enter into some type of blend, or you can blend from multiple animals or m- different varieties of animals, um, so then what, what happens after, after this stage, after you have kind of the dry conditioned fiber? After you have your fiber all, all cleaned and ready to roll, the next step is putting it through a machine that's called a carder, and the process is called carding. 
and what comes out the other end is something that looks just like quilt batting. In fact, it's even called bat, B-A-T-T, batting. And that is essentially aligned fibers. The card works by um, cloth that's wrapped around rollers, and the cloth has thousands of little sharp teeth in it that rub across each other and pull at the fiber and make it line up. Huh. So is it like a... I mean, so literally what it looks like is if I were to kind of open up, open up like a quilt I had at home and it's just kind of, you know, the white or off-white or whatever color it is, kind of like cotton balls almost or? Yes, like a cotton ball, exactly. Okay. And then that that piece of equipment, a carding, uh, a carding machine, I mean, where does one like find those things and what type of an investment is, is that? What's the kind of scale choices you would have? Is that something someone could purchase something so small as they could do it in their home or? Yes. Um, you can buy uh, something called hand cards, which are less than $100, and just two little wooden paddles with the, that sharp cloth on it. And that's no different from what your grandmother your great-grandmother used at, on the farm hundreds of years ago to, to make yarn. Um, from that, there's a little machine called a drum carter that is, instead of just having handheld paddles, is a very small drum, maybe six inches in diameter and a foot across, that rolls when you turn the handle across two other smaller drums that do the same. You feed in, feed in the wool and out comes a lined fiber. You might have to feed it through a few times, but it'll come out pretty, pretty well aligned. Nice. So what's, what's the next step after the carding process? Um, this is where it depends on the kind of mill you have. There's two general kinds of mills, woolen mills and worsted mills. And woolen mills take the carded fiber and separate it into um, narrow little strips of batting from which a spinning machine can make yarn. And a worsted mill takes what comes off the, the card and condenses it and stretches it in a process called drafting and combs that some more to make uh, narrow little strips of batting that can then be spun. Okay, and why would you choose kind of one over the other? Well, the woolen mill is an excellent choice if you're making things that you want to felt a little bit like uh, woolen blankets or hunting coats, warm sweaters, Irish fishermen's sweaters, things like that, because when you separate it right off the bat and start spinning it, you end up breaking some of the, the fibers, and so you create lots of little sharp edges. When you comb it, and align the fibers further, there's less edges and longer, straighter pieces of fiber. So as a result, that yarn is going to make drapier items. And you, the thing you know the most is when they talk about suiting and say, oh, that's a worsted wool suit. Okay. Well, that's what that means when that wool hangs almost like a, a silk or a rayon. It's, 
It's very beautiful drape. That also works great for um, tunics, for towels, for long-armed gloves. Um, think about anything drapey, Afghans, for the back of your couch. Okay. Interesting. So wh- which process do you use um, up at Battenkill? Uh, we're a we're worsted process okay. here. And the reason we did that is that we are trying to help farmers with heritage breed of sheep, um, longer wool sheep with less crimp. And we need to be able to, um, for those long, those slipperier fibers, not be breaking them like the woolen process does, or else they won't hold together, or they'll be extra scratchy, and there's no need to be scratchy when a farmer's worked hard to raise a breed with long wool. Okay. Then to be breaking it apart doesn't doesn't seem to work. So that scratchiness thing, that I mean, that's a result of the actual type of fiber and the the woolen or the worsting process, or why 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 are some wool sweaters kind of itchy and scratchy and others aren't? A lot of that has to do with the breed, Aaron, as well as if it's been worsted spun or woolen spun. Uh, there's some breed of sheep that are just going to be naturally scratchy. They measure the softness or fineness of the wool in um, microns, and the micron count from a really fine wool like a merino sheep, which is maybe 19 or 20 microns, goes all the way up to 35 or 40, double the thickness. So you can imagine that something that's twice as thick is going to be a whole lot scratchier. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you've gone through the woolen or the worsting process, and now you're essentially ready to spin the yarn. Now, I mean, I've definitely seen in, like, fairy tales or thinking about Rapunzel, the kind of spinning wheel that you you move with your foot, and the wheel spins, and you feed into it, and it kind of... What what is it what is it doing like what it, what's happening during the spinning process that that transitions kind of the batting strips into into yarn? It's the very same thing as Rapunzel did, whether one spindle is spinning or a hundred and one spindles are spinning. There's two things going on. In addition to what Rapunzel did with her feet, which is making the spindle twirl. Um, there's also the stretching. You hold the, the sliver, the, which is that strips of batting. You hold that in one hand and let, stretch it um, with your spinning machine or your spinning wheel, and that's called drafting. So you're constantly taking bigger pieces of fiber and stretching it to smaller pieces, and once you have it stretched out, um, you take and put the twist in it, and the twist is what holds it together. And that's what the treadling or the motor um, that you hear running now on our big spinner does. Okay. And then is there, I mean, if I'm thinking of, like, you know, fishing line, they talk about different amounts of, like, you know, what is the test of the line, like how many pounds can it hold? Is there a similar type of, you know, uh, spectrum or ranking system for the actual strength of the finished yarn? That's right, and we measure it in the number of twists per inch. And so weavers who want um, upholstery fabric or a very firm fabric look for a high number of twists per inch in their yarn. 
and then a softer yarn. Think of like a lopy sweater, mm-hmm. which is very soft. Is probably only one or two twists in an inch. Okay, and what would be like a, a large number of twists per inch? Ten. Ten, okay. So you go through the spinning process. At this point, you have yarn, right? I mean, like yeah. the yarn that I would see if I went to a yarn store to do some, pick up some things for a knitting, but maybe just like on a bigger, you know, what is it, what does it spin onto usually? Is it just like a giant ball? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, viewers are really going to need to follow this along, and they're welcome to come to our, our website, batandkillfibers.com, and see some machines in action and, and what they make. Uh, when we spin, we just spin onto a, a spindle or a bobbin, and then we take that bobbin, and if the customer wants two-ply or three-ply or four-ply yarn, we can ply multiple strands together, and whether it's plied or not, we can then put it up off of those spindles onto a cone or onto a skein, and the skein is what you usually see in the yarn store. The skein is the easiest one for hand painting or kettle dyeing or um, skein dyeing. Okay. And well, I was going to ask about that. You know, is it not until after the yarn has been spun that you would look at, you know, doing any kind of, you know, you go to the yarn shop, you see all different colors, you see some yarn with like, you know, glitter or sparkles or different things in them. At what point um, do, do those things happen? Well, um, the dyeing can happen at one of two points. After the locks were washed and dried way before they were picked and blended, um, you could have dyed the washed locks. And then by picking and blending, you make a very homogenous color. A lot of the large-scale, large-quantity commercial yarn you see is dyed that way. Then um, the kettle dyeing, where there's subtle variations in color, and even some skein dyeing where you need a very precise color in the end, is done after the skeins have been made. And right now it's very popular to also hand paint yarn, in which fiber artists literally take a skein of white yarn and using a a squeezy or um, paintbrush, paint on colors and bleed them into one another and create a variegated yarn called hand paint. Wow. That sounds like some serious crafting. I mean, is there another, is that the right word for it? I mean, at that point, like, what do you call someone who, who kind of practices the fiber arts? I think they're called a fiber artist. And um, in the knitting industry, they also call these folks indie dyers. Okay, so would I be ins- if I like call someone a crafter? Is that like an insulting term? No, it's not insulting, but you could call them an indie dyer or a fiber artist. A fiber artist would be better. Awesome. Well, we are just about out of time. Um, it's been so lovely, kind of working on this series with you and kind of getting to. Um, follow these fiber animals from from birth to the the final product and i'm just wondering kind of as as a wrap-up like where do you see the fiber world going in the future i mean i know that uh 
it sounds like there's been kind of a growth in in demand for regionally produced products. I know Vogue puts out like a, a knitting magazine. I mean, obviously, this is a big and dynamic industry. So, what are your what are your thoughts or hopes for the future? I'm really optimistic about the near future of the locally produced natural fiber market. Uh, I think that people have really become aware of how the things they are making, the clothing they're wearing, things they're using in their home, have been processed uh, on the other side of the globe. And the amount of energy that's gone into that and the working conditions of the people who are producing that. And I think you're definitely going to see a return to locally grown, locally manufactured fibers. Awesome. And if people want to check check out your work, they can visit you at www.battenkillfibers.com? Yes. And awesome. we'd love to also have them visit us in person. Uh, we're about a three-hour drive from New York City, um, just north of Albany, New York, uh, 10 miles from Vermont. And we're open pretty much every day, and we absolutely love giving tours and explaining to folks how yarn is made. Awesome. Well, Mary Jean, thanks so much for being a guest on the program today and for helping co-produce this series. I really look forward to uh, working with you again and hearing more about the fiber world as it continues to evolve in our region. Also want to say a big thanks to Joe for engineering today's show. You can always find archived episodes of The Farm Report on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Thursday at 1 p.m. If you have any questions for the show, you can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our programs archived on our website or by searching iTunes for Heritage Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter Twitter, Twitter, at heritage underscore radio. You can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website. Thanks for listening.